Jim, you are so gracious. Thank you for your kind words and prayers. But I have to admit, I didn't really ever expect to hear the words nudist colony come from your mouth. <laughs> kind of got me thinking about the etymology of that phrase, like why is it called a colony? It's just sort of strange. Anyway, let's move on. Well, I hope it was a good Thanksgiving for you. Some, some of us define good as in Thanksgiving differently. Um, we tend to gravitate toward either the sports on television or the food that we ate or the family that we enjoyed or the family that we endured, sometimes both. But um, it's helpful to just to be able to have a couple of days of out-of-the-routine stopping to um, just sort of reset our parameters. And because Thanksgiving isn't really a holiday that requires a lot of money to be spent or obligations toward the material, it gives us an opportunity to think about things that are a little bit more spiritual and also to be thankful. This is the first Thanksgiving we had with our grandson, Caleb, and he's just, you know, perfect. Five months old and just a 22-pound bunch of sugar. He's just great. So it was fun to be with him. And I got out early one morning. Uh, we went to my uh, sister-in-law, Kathy's sister's farm out in East Texas. And while we were there for a couple of nights, I got up early one morning, took our dog for a walk because the dog... Dog and I usually get up early at the house, and you know, when you get up early at somebody else's house, it's not always a good thing. So we took an early morning walk and down the country road, and out in the country in Texas, you know, where there are no lights, you can look up and just see stars. And this is the first time I've seen stars in a long, long time. So, I mean, the Big Dipper was just there right away. You could see it. And so many other just Beauty, beautiful constellations that uh, declare the glory of God. It, it was an unexpected gift, unexpected gift to be able to see those wonderful things. Thanksgiving is always bittersweet to me on a number of reasons, and I can certainly um, understand and relate to the, to the difficulty that the two saint sons are going through this week. I lost my mom on Thanksgiving uh, 19 years ago, I think it was. Not, uh, it was far more tragic than uh, our beloved Max, but uh, still I can relate to the, to the pain of it and the, the recurring brand new perspective that Thanksgiving brings every year is not just for the blessings of this life that, we get, that we're thankful for, but also the blessings of knowing that our loved ones are no longer struggling and that they are with the Lord, which is such a great blessing. It was also that week, that very same week, um, seven years ago, actually this, I think it's next week, seven years ago, next week, is uh, when Dr. Toussaint had his stroke. And of course, he no longer taught the class at that point. And I can still see his long finger pointing at me and telling me that he wanted me to take his place in teaching the class seven years ago, which has been a profound privilege when I think about the fact that 34 years ago, Dr. Toussaint was teaching me in seminary, and I never in, in the world would imagine in any way standing on his shoulders or in his shadow. Well, over the past couple of months, I've read a couple of biographies, one actually an autobiography by an individual whose name is so famous that you would know it but I'm going to use him in a negative light, so I'm not going to tell you who his name is, though you might can figure it out. But it's of a well-known businessman who worked for one car company, was unjustly fired, and then began working for another car company, and he was, you know, turned it around and became a billionaire, basically. And the book had some interesting points regarding business and this and that, but mo mainly it sort of came off to me as a, in-your-face response that this, this guy, this author, was giving to the individual that fired him all those years ago. Sort of a thumbing, thumbing your nose at, you know, look, look what I made at myself now that you fired me. 
type thing. And uh, one phrase in it that stuck, at, stuck out to me was where he said that he would never forgive this man for what he did to his family, putting his family through the pain of the firing. And the book ends basically with this guy on top of the world, uh, famous, successful, heralding his self-made, this self-made businessman who turned his fortunes around in spite of his unjust treatment. Very interesting book uh, for very interesting reasons. On the other hand, I'm, another biography that I'm currently reading, I'm just about done with it, is this book called For the Glory. It's a, a biography on Eric Little, the champion uh, we know so well from Chariots of Fire, who won a gold medal uh, back in the 1924 Olympics. But that's just a fraction of his very short life is that little bit that we see in Chariots of Fire. Of course, Little went on after that to become a missionary in China. And his years in China, following in his father's footsteps, Little um, was a missionary all the way up into the Second World War, where Japan occupied China and then took all the missionaries that were currently there and stuck them in concentration camps. Little's family had been sent back to Europe, so they were safe. But Little stayed. He felt an obligation to stay. And as a result, he was put in that concentration camp. And while he was there, his ministry, of course, shifted to now ministering to the people in the camp. And Little died in that camp and, uh, at the age of 43 from malnutrition and an un undiagnosed brain tumor only five months before the camp was liberated in 1945. And as I read these two two books about two lives. I just, I didn't decide to read them back to back. It just so happened. One, I was interested from a business perspective. The other, I was interested from a spiritual perspective on, uh, on Eric Little, mainly because when I went to Scotland recently and I asked someone, I think I shared this with you, I asked someone, uh, a barista, and they looked like they were mature enough to where, you know, it's not like I was asking someone in their 20s, but uh, these were older folks, and I said, hey, tell me where Eric Little lived here in Scotland. And they both looked at each other and said, who? Which is a world, world famous, and certainly uh, a hero of Scotland who has been all but forgotten, used to be a household name. But anyway, I sort of revived my interest in reading about Eric Little. And contrasting these two, this businessman and this, this Olympic gold missionary, was an interesting contrast to me. One a millionaire, one a missionary. One thumbs his nose at those who mistreat him. The other serves his enemies and even gives his life for others. The one that the world calls a success and the one whom the world would admire and yet call his life tragedy. Well, it's this type of contrast and hopefully uh, you can already guess which, uh, which one has the more biblical perspective of our challenge to be like, we will find today in Titus chapter 3. So turn with me to the last chapter of this short little book that Paul wrote to Titus, Titus chapter 3. And today we're going to finish this short series that we've had in the book of Titus. Paul wrote to Titus to show him that all Christians should be eager to do good deeds. Doing good deeds. This is the theme of the book of Titus. It's good deeds that are based or rooted in the motivation of God has been gracious to me through his grace, and as a result, I am now going to be a dispenser of that grace in the lives of other people. He focuses on how we as individuals can affect others with the grace that we ourselves have received. Titus chapter 3, let's look right in verse 1. Paul says, Remind them, meaning us, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, for all people. That's a pretty tall order. A couple of verses there be a lifetime assignment for all of us. Read this. Uh, to be subject to rulers, to authorities. This is 
we need to be reminded <laughs> of this, don't we? We need to be reminded of this. Uh, our lives have a bigger purpose than ourselves. Your life has a bigger purpose than yourself. Um, the glory of God gives us a reason to think bigger than just our own lives. The challenge is our own lives are a full-time job. I mean, it takes a lot of work to look as good as you do this morning. I mean, think about all that you had to go through <laughs> just to look as good as you do, not, not to mention to deal with all the emotional things that we have to deal with. But Paul says, look, the glory of God gives us a reason that's bigger than ourselves, and he begins with something that's easy to forget, which is why he says, remind them. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good deed, to malign no one. I mean, this is a context of government. This is a context of civil activity. This is a context of community. And this is a tough challenge. Christians should be model citizens, not just in our actions, but in our words. And notice the extremes that Paul uses in these first two verses. To be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, every consideration for all men. It's not like most people. You know, there's some people, eh, you know, we're going to let them slide because they really are just too tough to deal with. No, every, every, every person. It's referring to gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast with harshness. And again, Paul says, remind them. We need reminders. Otherwise, we slip into bad habits, old habits. Just listen to, if you don't believe me, just listen to people on television that talk about political parties. Or just listen to Christian talk shows sometimes. Or just listen to certain people that I won't name at Thanksgiving gatherings with family that love to deride the government. Paul says, malign no one. Malign no one. We often forget what this passage says about how a Christian is to act toward its government. It's a challenge. I remember one time I was uh, walking downtown Denton, I think it was, down on the square up there, and I saw a guy wearing a sandwich board. You know, those, those boards that have a big message in the front and a message in the back. And I forget exactly what it says, what it was said on it, but it was something like, you know, you're going to hell, and on the back, you know, yes, this means you, something like that. But I do remember that, I don't remember what it said, but I do remember he had painted flames on it, and he was screaming at the top of his voice, you know, basically screaming at people. And my initial reaction, of course, was just embarrassment. But, uh, and also, I wanted to just walk off, but instead, instead, I just sort of stopped and watched him and watched the people's reactions to him. That was what most interested me. How does the world react to this kind of preaching? And there were several, most people just sort of shook their heads like, like I initially did. Some laughed at him. Others simply walked around him. But here's the thing, nobody took him seriously. Not one person stopped and said, tell me more. Why? Because nobody is attracted to the wrath of God. Everybody is attracted to the grace of God. How are we going to share a message with a lost world? It's easy to point the finger and say, you're a sinner. It's hard to point the finger at yourself and say, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I need it. And by the way, he died for you too. Rather than being dispensers of God's grace, our world sees us as dispensers of rules and dispensers of condemnation. And the church is not all that kind with itself. I grew up in San Antonio, and I remember the... Um, uh, Alamo, I've been there more times than I've been to Kroger. But in the Alamo, there was a point in the fight where the enemy had gotten inside the walls and they turned the cannons outside the walls and began firing inside. 
And I thought, you know what, that's what the church does on occasion toward each other. They'll fire at one another. Eugene Peterson, and some of you may even be holding his wonderful paraphrase in your laps of the Bible. When he first started this, he was said to be, quote, tampering with God's word because of his paraphrase of the New Testament. Richard Foster, in that wonderful book on Christian disciplines, he included a chapter on meditation as a Christian discipline, and he was accused of being a New Ager. When Chuck Colson won the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, which an award that sometimes goes to non-Christians, he said that the ugliest emails that he got were from Christians. And he said, quote, Our brothers and sisters were far less charitable than the secular media was during my scandal at Watergate. On the other hand, I used to write a weekly religion column for a local paper, and one week I got a voice message that just shocked me, a voicemail from a person that said, and I wrote down what he, what he said. He said, uh, he said uh, hello, I just wanted you to know, first of all, I'm an atheist, and I saw your column in the paper, and I liked what it said. I wish we had more people who lived like what you said, so I appreciate you, and I love you for it. Click. I thought, how many, how many Christians would call an atheist and say, you know what, we don't agree on everything, but I want you to know I love you for what you said. Oh, that's so rare, isn't it, to have that kind of grace. Isn't there a way that we can communicate that some of the views of, that the government holds or that so-and-so holds are unbiblical, and yet do it without being hateful? Can't we speak the truth in love and still call a spade a spade? There is a way to do it. It begins by remembering that apart from the grace of God, we were all lost. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. Here's why we are to show every consideration for all people. Verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Here Paul describes the life of of unbelievers and all their hopelessness. A life apart from God eventually leads to this list. Addictions, envy, hate, hopelessness. Paul says we need to remember where we came from. We also were once foolish ourselves. Especially for those of us like me who got saved at a very young age. And even though, uh, you know, obviously I'm not perfect, and if you were saved at a young age and you're honest, you aren't perfect, we have a different experience than those of you who were saved maybe a little later in life. Most people were saved generally speaking, as kids. In fact, I'd love to see just a show of hands. How many of you were saved under the age of 10? That's probably about half. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is probably because your parents took you to church and you were drawn somehow by the Spirit of God to the grace of God. But those of us who were saved early on have to do some, some deep honest looking at ourselves, because we may not have a history that talks about this list. Maybe we do have a history that includes this list, even as Christians. But the reality is, whether we were saved, whether we were saved early, whether we were saved late, we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lust and pleasure, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. And notice Paul even includes himself in this group. We also. He includes himself. We should always strive to grow beyond our unbelieving past, but we should never, ever, ever go beyond forgetting our unbelieving past. Because otherwise we think, 
you know, we just sort of walk around thinking, you know, I am Mr. Holy, I am Mrs. Holy. And then all of a sudden we start pointing fingers rather than saying the grace of God is open arms. The grace of God is not pointing fingers. Paul says, be compassionate. Show every consideration for everybody. Because we were just like them. Verse 3. We were just like them. I love what C.S. Lewis said, what he wrote, when he said he never could understand how to make the distinction between that phrase, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner. How do you hate the sin but love the sinner? C.S. Lewis says, I never could figure that out. He says, but, quote, he said, but years later it occurred to me there was one man to whom I'd been doing this all my life, namely myself. (laughs) However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. What a great insight. It's easy for us to give ourselves a break, and yet, you know, to go on being, being people hard to be around. What's so interesting when we look at the life of Christ, we don't see sinners running from him. We see sinners running to him. He was called a friend of sinners because they flocked to Jesus Christ. Jesus drew these people. Now, the people that despised Jesus weren't the the prostitutes and tax collectors. It was the religious people of of all ironies. In fact, Jesus reserved his most, most scathing rebuke, not for the sinners, but for the religious. And that's why, because for one thing, the sinners were honest about their sin. The religious people felt that they had gotten beyond that. And they haven't. And we haven't. The problem in Jesus' day is a problem in our day. And it's a problem in our own hearts that we have to watch out for, which is why Paul lists it here in these first three verses. The hypocrisy of those who claim to be religious turns away the very people that Christianity is supposed to draw. Dostoevsky wrote, To love a person means to see him or her as God intended them to be. That's a hard look, isn't it? To look beyond who they are as to who God intended them to be. Please don't ever forget that the only difference between you and the person who is going to hell is the grace of God the grace of God. Our compassion on a lost world should come from the fact that someone had compassion on us when we were lost. Keep your place here in Titus and turn to your left, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And look at something else Paul wrote. I love these words of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1 Look down at verse 13. 1 Timothy 1, 13. Paul writes, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Let's stop there for a second. In your mind, maybe scratch out Paul's sins. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. You can say, well, I wasn't that. Okay, insert your sin there. Insert your sin there. I was formerly a, insert your sin there. Paul goes on, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul. And he says that Jesus saved him because if Jesus saved him, Jesus could save anybody. This is his point. That if he saves the chief of sinners, then his grace, he might demonstrate his perfect patience for anybody who would believe in him for eternal life. And you know why else Paul called himself the chief of sinners? Because nobody knows your sin like you. And this is a plus and this is a minus. It's a plus in that you realize the grace of God in your life is incredible because nobody knows your sin like you. You've heard it said that if you knew about me what I knew, what I know about me, this whole room would be empty and you wouldn't be listening to me talk. If we knew about you what you know about you, we wouldn't have let you come in that door. But that's only because we know the depth of our sin more than anybody else except Christ. We see, we think, the tar pit underneath the manhole that we try to keep covered. And so we hide it. Jesus sees a mile deeper. And he loves us anyway. His grace in our lives is a good thing when we realize the depth of our sin, because we realize his grace is incredible. But here's the bad part, or potentially the bad part. Satan is also aware of your past and, and the temptations that he has lured that you have bitten. And he loves to bring that up and remind you of the depth of your tar pit. You're not really saved. Are you kidding? Why would God choose you? but we don't listen to that lie. Paul says, as the foremost, I found mercy. So you can put your sin in there just like Paul did in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you can realize that Jesus Christ came to save you, that his grace extends in your life just as it does in my life. Now back to Titus 3. Back to Titus 3. One reason Paul describes the unbeliever in these bleak terms is to emphasize that when salvation came, it had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with God, which is why he begins verse 4 with the word, but. It's a contrast. Verse 4 says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for all men. You could literally translate uh, the beginning of verse 5 where it says he saved us not on the basis of deeds. You could literally translate that not, the emphasis on the word not, not from works we did, those are the two emphasis, not from works we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The emphasis is on what God has done, not in what we have done. And notice the contrast as well. I read quite a bit there, several verses altogether, because I want you to see the contrast between verse 5 and verse 8. Verse 5 says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. But then verse 8 says, be careful to engage in good deeds. See the good deeds there, verse 5 and verse 8? Verse 5 says, he saved us not on the basis of good deeds. Verse 8 says, so that we will engage in good deeds. 
So here's a principle that we get straight from the text. We are not saved by good deeds, but for them. We are not saved by good deeds, but for them. Before we knew Jesus Christ, our good deeds meant nothing except our condemnation. So why did Jesus save us? So that being saved by grace and motivated by grace, now we do good deeds from a totally different mindset. Not in order to be saved, but because we already are saved. We are not saved by good deeds, but for them. Good doctrine produces good deeds. You know, as you look at the Old Testament, uh, it talks about all kinds of laws. Don't touch this, don't eat that, uh, don't touch a dead body, don't you know, try to avoid anything sick, because it makes you unclean. You, you can't come into the presence of God unclean. You have to be cleansed first. We saw that in our mini-week study in Leviticus. But when you look at the life of Christ, you see just the opposite happen. He touched the sick and the dead. But instead of them making him unclean, he made them clean. Of coming to Jesus Christ did just the opposite. And in a sense, we're to be like Christ. And I don't mean we're going around healing people, but I mean that we, we go around to be the catalyst through whom Christ can work and change lives. Don't see the undesirables in our world as a reason to withdraw, but as opportunities for God's mercy. Listen to this amazing statement by David Siemens, the counselor. He's summed up his whole career of counseling Christians with this paragraph. So listen, listen closely to what, how he sums it up. He said, Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And second, the failure to give out that unconditional love forgiveness to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace hasn't penetrated the level of our emotions. We don't understand, receive, and live out God's grace, and we don't give it in the lives of others. My friends, this is why our daily time in the Word of God is so essential. If you're around somebody who spends regular time in the Scriptures, and by regular time in the Scriptures, I don't just mean that you're checking boxes off that you're, that you're reading. That's a great place to start, but don't let that be where it stops. Think about and let your mind filter through all that you're go that's going on in your mind. And especially around the themes of receiving God's grace, there is no longer any condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Let that wash over you. Let that identify you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you at all. It was all placed on Jesus on the cross. And now we can look at the world not with a condemning finger, but with compassion. Because they were just like us. They are just like we were. But look at something that grace doesn't mean. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, Paul says, look, being gracious, being loving, doesn't mean you tolerate error and sin. Love doesn't mean that you sacrifice truth, or vice versa. Truth doesn't mean that you sacrifice love. Being a gracious Christian doesn't mean that your dignity is a doormat. It means you deal with sin and error in a loving way, not in hostility. Sacrificial love doesn't mean you sacrifice truth. I remember I was at the grocery store one time, and the older 
man, there was an older man in front of me in the checkout line, and uh, he was kind of quiet. You know, he was just kind of standing there while all his stuff was being tallied up. And the clerk behind the counter was obviously, you know, one, a peppy person who was just that shy of not really sure about reality, just sort of this positive ignorance. And that became obvious when this individual looked at this older man who was clearly down. And the checker said, are you having a great day? I just want to say, friend, look at, look at the guy. He's not having a great day. And the older man didn't even say anything. He just shook his head. And after he left, the checker said to me in kind of a quiet voice, he said, that man was too bristly. I thought, first of all, nobody uses that word. <laughs> and I said, I think he was just honest. And then the checker said, well, there's too much of that around here. <laughs> I said, honesty? He goes, yeah. You see, the alternative to truth is to just fake it. Just fake it. Just, wa- just whitewash you know, your emotions and the truth and just fake it. Or we can actually enter into the pain in the lives of other people and introduce Jesus Christ to them. There's an archaeology magazine that I subscribe to, and every once in a while it notes the death of some scholar in it. And uh, this particular scholar, who had been a champion for ecumenicism, was also had been a voice for women and minorities. The articles ended with a quote from this scholar, and, and I wrote his words down. I wrote the uh, words of this scholar as he says what his major emphasis was in his ministry. He said, quote, The Christian Bible includes sayings that have caused much pain both to Jews and to women. Thus, I have felt called to seek forms of interpretation which can counteract such undesirable side effects of the Scriptures. In other words, let's just use the Bible for what we want it to say rather than for what it says. If there's anything in the Bible that's undesirable, let's just retweak it or ignore it, or let's, let's put upon it a form of interpretation that, that counteracts, to use his own words, the undesirable side effects of the Holy Scriptures. You know, for me, hell is an undesirable side effect. But I want to know the truth about how to avoid it. I don't want someone to just say, hey, you having a great day on your way to hell? (laughs) No. I want to know the truth. When we go to a doctor, we don't want the doctor to just say, hey, man, things are looking great. You're going to be dead in six months. No, you want to know the truth. We can deal with the truth if it's told in an honest way, especially if there's a way out of it. And thank goodness, with regard to hell, with regard to our judgment before a holy God, there is a way out. The grace of God has made a way out through Jesus Christ. So it may seem obvious, but Christianity stands or falls with its view of Christ. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has died for our sins. He's been raised And he has demonstrated his love for us by his supreme sacrifice. So when Paul says here in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, the word that he writes here for avoid, or the word shun, literally means to turn yourself around, as to face the other way. So if there's a foolish controversy going on, you just, you don't get involved in it. You don't get involved in it. It doesn't mean that you, you don't at least correct the error or discuss the error, but if there is a controversy that looks like it's just going to go on for the sake of argument, you just, you just turn around. You don't involve yourself in that. Because as Paul says, it's unprofitable and it's worthless. 
And Paul says, if you've got somebody in your church or fellowship who is argumentative, warn him a couple of times, and after that, don't even fellowship with him because it's unprofitable. Paul's giving not just this generality of doing good, but he also gets very specific. In fact, he gives a couple of specific examples. Look at verse 12. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Good deeds, Paul says, have specific application. It's not just generality. Live a good life, do good deeds. You know, Paul gets specific. Help Zenos. Help Apollos. Send them on their way. Take care of them. Sometimes it's not just money that we help people with. So that seems like an obvious one. But sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's a listening ear. Sometimes it's a letter of encouragement or even a simple text. How long does a text take to encourage somebody? Thinking of you today, praying for you today, and then maybe include some verse or something that you've... uh, There's a young lady right now, well, in our family. Otherwise, that might sound a little funny. There's a young lady right now that I'm sending texts to on a daily basis. Yeah, in our family. (laughs) Just go ahead and throw that in there, too. But I'm trying to just give her a word of encouragement on a regular basis. And it's so simple to do that, isn't it? It's possible for us to live in the grace of God without sharing it. So... The second principle is this. A fruitful Christian engages in good deeds that meet needs, real needs, or as Paul says, pressing needs. Engage in good deeds that meet pressing needs. If you see a pressing need, one reason God may have revealed it to you is so that you can meet it. In fact, this is the whole theme, the whole takeaway of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Any need that you see that you are able to meet, we are called to be a neighbor. And again, it's not always money. Sometimes it's simple as just taking the time to listen or to encourage somebody. And notice Paul also writes, learn it. He says, let our people learn. This doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it takes practice at this because we tend to walk away from pressing needs. Think about, again, the Good Samaritan parable. There were how many people that just sort of overlooked the uh, the person lying on the road before finally the Good Samaritan stopped? We're busy people. We got places to be. We got things to do. We see, you know, a pressing need. It's just going to take time. And it does take time. We, uh, I love what uh, Floyd Thiessen used to do. When uh, And I say used to do because, Floyd, you no longer go to Africa uh, just because of time, and I know the circumstances have changed, but he used to go there and help with agriculture and use his non-spiritual gift and ability to go and help in a very physical way that laid the groundwork for the pastors there, for the Christians there, to see the love of God. This met pressing needs. It met pressing needs with water, with food, and he did this for years. Paul writes the book of Titus in the summer of A.D. 66. Remember, after his first release, he's already been in prison. Now he's wandering for a year, and he's going to be um, basically martyred the year after this. So this is like some of the last things he wrote. In fact, it was his second to last book. He writes Titus, and then he's in prison again, and he writes 2 Timothy and he's martyred. And he says, come to me, uh, I'm going to send to you Artemis and Tychicus. They're going to come to you at Crete, and and it looks like he's not sure which one's going to come, but whoever comes, as soon as they arrive, you come to me at Nicopolis, because I'm going to spend the winter there. This was his last winter as a free man. The next winter would be in the Mamertine prison, where he would write to to Timothy in 2 Timothy, 
also telling Timothy, come before winter. And he says the same thing here to Titus. He would be martyred as a missionary for Christ. I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs from Eric Little's biography. He's in the concentration camp at this point, toward the end of his life. And we're told, Little was officially the math and science teacher. He was unofficially everything else. His, his original role had supposedly confined his other duties to arranging worship services and taking Bible classes and scripture readings and organizing sports on a bare patch of land in the camp's southwest corner. He scrupulously did all these things and became a, a wonderful presence. He took extra turns at pumping water. He cleaned the latrines. He chopped wood and rolled coal balls before taking that fuel to the elderly. He swept floors. He took away garbage. He carted sacks of food and supplies and helped out in the kitchen. He played chess to stoke the competitive spirit of those who seemed resigned to giving up as prisoners. He did numerous odd jobs, shifting furniture, hanging washing lines, completing fiddly repairs. He put up a row of shelves for one of the prostitutes. She said afterward that Little was the only man there to come into her room without demanding favors. When Little wasn't engaged in fetching or carrying, he gave emotional support to the interns. He was the consoling Samaritan of the camp, the epitome of a good neighbor. Into his ears, problems were poured, and Little listened to friends and strangers alike. He never flagged. Little rose before it got light, well in advance of his companions, to pray silently. He sat at the table with the curtains tightly shut so that the Japanese wouldn't see the low glow of his peanut oil lamp and think someone was trying to escape. Little's advice was always, first of all, have a prayer hour. Secondly, keep it. He was rigid on the point because he believed, quote, anyone who neglected that fixed hour of prayer will say he can pray at all times, but will probably end up praying at no time. He explained that the opening few minutes of his prayers were a sincere moral search in which he waited for the mind to stop at anything that he had done wrong. Little compared his quiet period of contemplation and study to washing the dust from his eyes. Once that was done, he faced the day to come. Those who saw what Little did believed he came close to bucking the theory that no one is indispensable. One internee said, I once saw him unloading supplies from the back of the cart, and I said to myself, why is he doing that? That's someone else's job. Later I realized he did everything. It said that he was worth 10 men. Another observer put it even better. I was amazed that anyone could carry such a timetable. And then at the end of his life and the end of the book, it says this. It's said that every moment in speech reveals us. What revealed him, especially his attitude toward athletic prowess versus missionary duty, was his response to a specific long-winded question at a particularly apt moment. In 1932 in Toronto, um, he could have been competing there at the Olympics instead of watching his own countrymen like a curbside spectator. Buttonholed by a pushy interviewer, he faced a series of questions rolled colorfully into one question. The way each of them was framed suggested the newspaper man regarded him as slightly out of his mind for choosing a career in China over athletics. Are you glad you gave your life to missionary work? He was asked. Don't you miss the limelight, the rush, the frenzy, the cheers, the rich red wine of victory? The part of his reply that really mattered is humble and firmly ranks his missionary responsibilities well ahead of his running. He told his inquisitor, A person's life counts far more for this than for the other. In other words, the world looks at a person like Little as a tragedy. And yet, the Lord sees the greater priority in Eric's life as opposed to the life of others that don't focus on those things. Paul told us here in Titus that a fruitful Christian life engages in good deeds that meet needs. So this week, you're going to see real needs. 
the Lord's going to show them to you. And he's going to show them to me. Sometimes that means money. Sometimes, more often than not, it just means time. To stop, to listen, to talk, to encourage, to find some way to meet that pressing need. Just think back in your own life. How many times a simple conversation that you had with somebody changed the course of your life just by your thinking? I can think back to conversations. And it it didn't involve money at all. It was just someone's love to tell me the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the book of Titus. As the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, picked up his pen and writes these pastoral epistles, he puts into them not just what pastors and church leaders should be and do, but also what they should teach us by their life, by their example, and by their words. And we've read this book. We've gone through its pages and the verses that talk about not only receiving the grace of God, but living it. This is a tall order. It's so much easier to just receive the grace of God as a gift and then to go about our life living it as if it was just us. That Paul writes this book to us and help us, Lord, to live it. That we would be engaged in good deeds. We are not saved by good deeds, but we are saved for them. That our life has a purpose that's bigger than us. Please give us an awareness of the needs that we have before us. And also give us the courage to take the, the time, to take the next step and to reach out with a word of encouragement. And eventually, Lord, would that word also include our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for people that we can look to. We can think of people in our lives who have been models of this, what we've read. Uh, We read a little of the life of Eric Little. Seems to be so tragic from a worldly standard, and yet from a heavenly standard, from an eternal standard. Uh, standard. What a great life. And as little one day will be resurrected, then everything will be put right. And we know that in our own lives, the sacrifice that we lay down for family members, friends, for all the things that we do that seem to be such uh, an upside-down, topsy-turvy priority in this world are instead your priority. And we can have confidence that you are pleased And we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Wayne, thank you for leading us through Titus. It was a great book, great study. And uh, as a reminder of the pressing needs that we have, volunteers for the Christmas party and also for Max's service. So until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.